I'm going to clap first, and then Sean will clap second, and then Joe can clap third. That sound uh, reasonable. Okay. Yeah, sure. Let's go for it. <laughs> Did anyone else think Joe good. forgot how to clap? <laughs> there was a big delay. Yeah, on it, 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 I clapped, about... and then there was an uncomfortable delay. On I, hey, I... I did mine immediately after yours. I don't know what your delay is on about, mate. Sorry. The thing about Joe Ranchka is he's not familiar with the idea of applause uh, because he never <laughs> gives it nor 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 get nor takes it. Well, it's because you see, I like to challenge people instead of you know feeding them what they want. I give them what they need. Do you want to do the intro this week, Joe? Sure. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Cannon Fodder with Joe and Joe, the show where we take history's most okayest films and aim to make them slightly better. I'm Joe, and this week, I'm drinking water out of a Star Wars The Force Awakens mug with a Deadpool topper on it just to annoy the other Joe, who will introduce himself now. The only thing that annoys me is that you purchased either of those two things, let alone both of them required to create a combination cup. It's that I was seeing them in the cinema and I thought it was a good idea to buy a commemorative cup. And you know what? They're useful. I suppose only in the same way that all cups are useful. Um, yeah. I am the other Joe. Um, and um, we're joined this week by who I increasingly laughingly refer to as our guest, Sean Brady of OFIT D Productions. Sean? Hello. Um, coming from the guy who used to work at Cineworld, um, those cups are useless. Uh, no, they're not. I've got plenty of use out of them. You're wrong. Thank you. Um, so, right, Sean, so this, this week, week we... is a show in which I will essentially be taking a back seat and acting as the guest because we're discussing Star Trek, a topic I know little to nothing about. This is the episode where I earn like guest star status. So, Sean, we are this week discussing your ideas of how you would fix Star Trek Nemesis. That's Star correct, Trek yeah? Nemesis. So uh, Star Trek Ten. Yeah. So Star Trek Nemesis was. So it's, the tenth... it's the tenth Star Trek film, and I think off the top of my head, it's the, the fourth, third, or fourth. Fourth next gen film. It's the fourth next gen film. It was released in 2002 and it did manage to just about scrape into being technically in the clear and the and 67 million against a 60 million budget. But obviously, that's still a failure. As well as giving when you a... take into account that does not yeah. include publicity, etc. Mm. As well as uh, um, giving us early, bold, twink, beautiful Tom Hardy. Um, in his in one of his earliest roles as Praetor Shinzon. This film the, almost uh, killed off uh, his career. Romulan clone of Patrick Stewart, somehow. Right. Did, it, did any of you uh, want to take it away? You told us Nemesis. not to, so yeah, I didn't. I am um, interested to know if you can obviously tell us in brief what the problems are with ne Nemesis. Wait, 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 wait. <clears throat> Guys, now... Those of you listening at home, if you care about spoilers for uh, Star Trek Nemesis, uh, a mostly hated film oh. from 18 years ago, um, go and watch it now. We'll wait. Sorry, guys. I should have said We'll wait. Alert. And now that you've come back from watching Star Trek Nemesis, uh, presumably 
extremely disappointed. Okay, so firstly, Nemesis is a really bad film. And you know it's a bad film from the opening scene where you see the entire Romulan government, like the high end of the government, taken out in one attempt with a stupid little device that someone's brought in. But we're talking about the most paranoid species in Star Trek where they don't trust anyone. So someone just coming in, sitting right in the middle, playing with a little device, and then and then basically saying, oh, I've got another meeting, I'm going. And then she just leaves the device, kills them all. Wouldn't happen. At no point does this film really reference the outside Star Trek world, apart from Janeway sends Picard a like a message saying, oh, this is your mission. The Romulans want to be friends with us now. Go meet the Romulans. And that's it. This film came out when Next Gen, Deep Space Nine and Voyager had ended. This this was the first film where probably the golden age of Star Trek had ended. People are going to argue that like the original series is the most important. But we're talking about Star Trek in the 90s was when it peaked. This film should have been uh, a reward for the Star Trek fans. But instead... It was directed by someone who didn't really know anything about Star Trek. They made no point of developing the universe, developing the wider Star Trek story. It just seems like, oh, the Star Trek fans are going to come and watch this anyway. Let's make a film where other people will come and watch, which is a bit pointless. And you think about it, where it's it's the 10th Star Trek film. It's the fourth of this this cast, if you haven't got the non-Star Trek fans at this point, you're probably not going to get them. The plot's a bit pointless, you know. The the bad guy's plan makes no sense because he wants to he wants to kidnap Picard and basically do some experiments on him so he doesn't die. The one thing that really bugs me about this film is that Worf is technically the highest ranking member on that ship. He is now, at the end of Deep Space Nine, the uh, Federation ambassador to Kronos, which is the Klingons. But he's not. He's just treated the same way he was when he was part of the Enterprise crew. So you don't even acknowledge that character's development, the arcs has been on. He's at a wedding. He's at Riker's and uh, Councillor Troy's wedding. And... And no, at no point does anyone really acknowledge, like, oh, no, we're all your mates, but none of us went to your wedding. Another problem with this film is um, it's another film centred around Picard, which you'd think, well, why wouldn't it be? He's the captain and he's the lead. Generations was centred around Picard. First Contact was centred around Picard. Uh, Insurrection was centred around Picard. And then... Nemesis was centered around Picard. You've you you're at this point you're redoing character points, character development with Picard that you'd done in like first contact. You don't need to do it again. You've got all these cool characters. You've got Riker who who's getting ready to captain his own ship. You, you there's there's other characters that you could have uh gone with, but no, they didn't. They were like Picard again. Thank you. So yeah, just don't watch the film. 
I know like with the other ones where we've sort of fixed bits of the film, the blah, blah, blah. I have just completely cleaned the slate. Like we're starting again. The only thing I have to do following the rules of the podcast is kill data at some point. Because this is the... F- okay. Yeah. At the end, um, this data dies. Data sacrifices himself. But he doesn't really, because at one point in the film, they find um, a copy of data and they're like, they sort of they sort of leave like a little bit at the end where, oh, maybe data can be put into this machine. But they don't. Well, doesn't data come back in Star Trek Picard anyway? Isn't like Brent Spiner in it yeah. as data, not like a rebuilt version of him? It's not a rebuilt version. It's his memory. So they go okay, to. So it's not the original data module. It's still no, like it, but it is him. It's still data. Yeah. Okay, so it's a it's a copy of data, but he's been formatted. Yeah. So well, that he we don't have. Data always used to back himself yeah. up, and that's yeah, what okay. it is. He's Lucy at the end of Lucy. Yeah. No, he's a series of um, floppy disks. Yeah. Um, okay. But stacked and PVA glued together. So into the ending of the film is data being. will become we transfer. I mean that's what happens if you I <laughs> just get like we transferred to like the Android planet in Bacard. Sorry, I went on for a ramble there. I got started talking okay. about I prepared stuff and then I'm like ah Star Trek Nemesis it's the worst <laughs> Nemesis came out in 2002. 2002. 2002. Like a year after Voyager ended. Yeah. So at this point, you've had four films that are entirely based around uh, Jean-Luc Picard and really pretty much entirely based around the next-gen crew. But what you've had at this point is three totally different series that have totally different crews with their own ensemble casts that have almost entirely been ignored um obviously you said that there's the reference to Janeway in Nemesis but apart it's, from that it's a throwaway like, reference yeah like where where you've got this really richly built um you know, universe especially when it comes to things like Deep Space Nine like Voyager you know you've still got very very interesting characters you've got an interesting premise um and then Deep Space Nine is more of a kind of it's political intrigue you have much more uh, interesting setup for an ensemble piece because it's geostationary. It's all taking place in one place. You're dealing with the political um, implications of this this outpost. You're not dealing with a creature of the week situation like the other two series. Um, it just seems like there was an almost concerted effort to avoid talking about them yep. because they weren't, I guess, the flagship show. Well, uh, you know, at, you're not looking at the Enterprise, are you, with uh, with Voyager or Deep Space Nine? At the with, with them shows, I understand with the earlier f- free films that you don't reference the TV shows as much, especially Deep Space Nine, because it's not fair on the TV show if you have a interlocking story. The TV show then has to wait for the films, like we've seen with Agents of Shield. They like tried to have them interlink, and they were like building up storylines, and then they completely had to change their Shield storyline when when you got to the Winter Soldier. So, so should, I saw Soldier. from doing my research into this one that the plans were that they were going to make a fifth and final TNG film after this, kind of wrapping it up, but that 
said film was cancelled because of the negative, both critical and commercial response to this film. With this, this so film. I'm interested to know um, with yours, is this going to be setting up for that film as if if this one did well, that that one would exist further? Is this going to be linking into Star Trek Picard or does this exist separate? This will be leading off from all three, all three series. This film's going to be the first of its own trilogy and... It's also going to be spinning off a TV show. Okay, interesting. Um, before we carry on, I just want to tell anyone who's listening, um, before we uh, we get really into the, the meat of this, um, Sean assigned us a, a few episodes of Star Trek to watch um, as homework to prepare us for this uh, this this version that he's uh, presenting so if you want to have the full um experience go and watch uh, next generation deep okay. space not all of them <laughs> if you, you know I, although watching these four episodes did get me into hell of uh, i want to go and rewatch all of all of the new like i say new all of the 90s star treks but so we've got deep space nine uh season six episode 18 inquisition um and we have uh next gen season seven episode 24 preemptive strike and then also uh next generation chain of command parts one and two season six episodes 10 and 11 yes okay and now you've gone and watched those excellent, excellent episodes of television and four hours have. later after watching Star Trek Nemesis. So presumably you're now uh, about seven hours into this podcasting experience. Oh, no, don't uh, watch Nemesis. Sorry. <laughs> I will say, for film. transparency's sake, I um, watched the um, I watched the standalone episode you sent of Next Generation I got most of the way into Deep Space Nine, but that was late last night, and I started to fall asleep. Um, but I did watch a video explaining to me who the people introduced in it were so that I could save myself a bit of time. Okay. okay. Sean, I watched them all. Um, I watched them all. I really enjoyed them. I like where you're going with it. Um, because my primarily it talks about um, Section 31 and the McKee. The marquee. Yeah, the marquee. Yeah. So should should I should I start? Like this is literally the most I've written since university. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think just just get into it now that we've so just, uh, we've we've laid so the groundwork. I'm gonna give you like a little um a little, little bit where each um, series ends. So we'll go on to Voyager, which is the easiest one to start. Voyager ends with them getting back to the Alpha Quadrant after being sent to the Delta Quadrant by advanced uh, technology. And the whole point of that series is they get sent there, they get stuck there, and it's their journey home. They have to go through territory that they don't really know who lives there, and they have to, and they have to go through Borg space as well. So, that, so when Voyager gets back, it's used uh, Borg technology, and Voyager's used that to get home. So Voyager's got back. And now it's got all this integrated advanced technology, especially Borg technology, which is pretty much the most advanced thing in Star Trek, apart from like Q, 
Um, so they've got they've come back to the Alpha Quadrant with all this advanced tech, and it's not just that they've got the tech; it's already integrated with um, Federation ships because uh, Seven of Nine um, and X Borg was there doing it all, and she's made it. She basically made Voyager like. Borg upgrades made it great. So that's where Voyager ends. Deep Space Nine is the is the really complicated one. Deep Space Nine ends <laughs> with the Alpha Quadrant beating the uh, all-powerful Dominion, which are from the Gamma Quadrant, and they get there through the wormhole um, over Bajor. And in that war, basically, the Bream the Cardassians and the Dominion all joined up to try and take over the Alpha Quadrant. And it was the Federation, the Klingons and the Romulans that came together and beat the Federation, which is another reason why Nemesis makes no sense. Because even though the Romulans aren't busy buds with the Federation now, they actually are sort of open communications and you do find out as well, the Federation have a mole in Romulus. So in Nemesis, when they're like, oh, the Romulans are like, want to play ball. Like, oh yeah, we know. Cause we all watch Deep Space Nine. They've been doing that for ages. Yeah. So that happens at the end of Deep Space Nine. A key thing to understand is the Cardassians are on their arse. When the Dominion realized they were going to lose, um, they just thought, fuck it, we're going to kill the Cardassians as well. Because the Cardassians sort of switched sides because there was a, a rebellion on Cardassia Prime. And they were like, now, we're, now we, we don't want to be the dickheads anymore. We've been the dickheads for like 50 years. Maybe we should be good guys for a little bit. And then the Dominion were like, now nah, we're going to blow up all your cities. Thank you. So the Cardassians at the end of Deep Space Nine are like a beaten, beaten uh, culture. And Bajor itself, their old enemies, they're now on the rise um, because after the war, they're joining the Federation. They were, their sector of space was like a key area of winning the war because they've got the wormhole, Deep Space Nine next to the wormhole. Yeah. And next gen, um, how did that sort of end? That ended with Picard sort of like being less of a hard ass, sort of like trying to be more chill. And play a bit of poker. Mm. So that's where we end up. Right. So film's coming in, yeah? So opening scene. Subtitles. I've got this. Right. So it opens. <laughs> it opens with a single Cardassian ship. Oh, and actually, I should explain <laughs> where um, these places are. So Earth, Romulus, Klingons, they're sort of in the beta quadrant and Bajor, Cardassia are in the Alpha Quadrant, and it's it's quite a journey. So well, one of the things in Deep Space Nine was, oh, we need reinforcements from the Federation, but reinforcements couldn't just, like, war there in, like, a couple of minutes. It took days, it took weeks. Mm. So that was one of the key things. It, it was always, like, quite far away. So the film opens with a Cardassian ship undocking and leaving Deep Space Nine. You get like a cool, impressive panning shot of Deep Space Nine, the wormhole, Bajor, and we follow the ship as it goes to warp. Then inside the ship, we see the captain sending a message, basically stating ETA to Cardassia Prime, 78 hours. 
None of the crew are wearing the classic Cardassian military uniform. And it's established that, you know, in short conversations, that the crew is basically a science vessel with the aim of transporting medical supplies and, you know, gifts, like gifts from the Federation, basically. They're getting um, replicators. Um, this discussion is cut short after an older crew member says they're only doing this so, to get us to join there. And before he can say anything else, the captain like puts him in his place. The captain's like, it's because of men like you that now we find Cardassia on like the edge of a void. If joining the Federation is the cost of survival and our people's safety, then we should count ourselves lucky. And just as the captain finishes, the starship unexpectedly drops out of warp and stops. There's a panic on the bridge. Everyone's like, what's going on? The captain's shouting out orders, trying to get people to do nothing, but nothing's responding. No shields, no weapons, engines offline. There's an external shot of the spaceship alone in space. And then you hear the classic sound of a decloaking ship, followed by the sound of phasers and cannon fire. We don't see where the fire comes from, as the screen slowly fades on the starship being destroyed. Titles, Star Trek Legacy. <laughs> Change the name. <laughs> okay, good name, good name. The reason why I've done that is a lot of, sh there's like the Romulans have cloaking devices. The Klingons have cloaking devices. There's a, there's a lot of species that have cloaking ships and they all have that same noise. So I'm just like leaving there, like, oh, who could this have been? So then from the oh. credit, oh, go on, Joe. Also, I was just going to ask, in the film Star Trek Nemesis, yes. who is Picard's nemesis and are they in the film? Um, the Tom, Cardis, Tom Hardy's character. Yeah, but is, has um, he been previously established at all? Nope, nothing. No, he's he a get... clone. He is a young Romulan clone of, um, is he Romulan or Reman? He is. Like he's a Romulan he clone. Is a he? Romulan, he's a Romulan. He's a human clone, but made by the Romulans. Okay. But so he is he... a young Jean-Luc Picard clone. Okay, so he's Bizarro. Got it. A yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Like, they had a plan to, like, replace Picard, and then they changed their mind and then sent him to the mines. Like, yeah, we don't need you now. So then, from that, we have the title screen, and we have, like, a quick CGI sequence as we travel from the crashed starship all the way to Earth. So we're passing different star systems, different space stations that we sort of have like seen in the TV series. So we're going to pass like uh, Vulcan mm. and, you know, just sort of like, again, little Easter eggs for the fans. Because this film, I'm making it, is it's a reward for the for the fans. It's not like, oh, let's make some... So if, I, if I'm... But hopefully, as well as being a reward for the fans, it's also yeah, good. Yeah, that's 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 my aim. Is instead of making an all right film where some people will come and watch it, because you you always know the Star Trek fans are going to go and watch it, and then hopefully you'll get some other people to watch it. My aim is to make a, a brilliant film where the Star Trek fans will want to watch it, and then want to watch it again, and then want to watch it again, and then word of mouth of that excitement. Well, then we'll get like the people like, oh, mm. maybe I'll start watching this Star Trek film. Yeah. So then we get all the way to Earth. We see Earth yeah. space dock and then we zoom in onto the window where we find Captain John Luke Picard and his first 
Officer William Riker waiting at a large desk. Act one. Boom. <laughs> okay, so we've got... Because you will notice as well, as we go through, I am going to be shoehorning in characters. It will feel like I'm shoehorning them in, but instead of just making new characters up, if I've got characters, I'm using them in the TV show. If it makes sense that they'd be there, I'm having them. It's very much like... um, Well, that makes sense. Like It's like when we discuss the Farscape thing of like, if you've got a universe full of characters, use the characters you've got rather than create new ones when you can go back to, you know, reference something you didn't see. Yeah, well, I think the easiest one, the easiest TV show to draw examples from is It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. They reuse people. They never forget Mm. what's happened before. Even though each episode is like, like its own episode they've never forgotten bits characters and, come back and also it must be said that if you're yeah. setting up the film as being called star trek legacy you would presume going into that if you've seen the word legacy in the title that it's going to in some way involve the history of the show yeah well that's the plan so yeah that's the plan so picard and Riker are sitting at the desk of admiral owen paris who is the father of tom paris from voyager he was the Helmsman of Voyager. Okay. Yeah. They are there for the Admiral. They're waiting for the Admiral to arrive. It's a large office located high up in high up in the Earth space dock. On one side of the office, there are several windows looking out into space. And on the other side is one large window looking into the massive shipyard inside space dock. You can see various ships. You can see the USS Enterprise E, which is a sovereign class ship and obviously the most advanced ship in the in the fleet. You can see a Klingon bird of prey. You can see in the distance the USS Voyager, which is sort of like it's got large bits missing to it because it's um, there's lots of construction going on and it's being worked on. And the closest to the office window is the USS Titan, which is a lunar class ship. Okay, so. Admiral Paris enters and sits at the desk. He explains how all the upgrades from the Voyager project, you know, which is basically all the tech that Voyager collected, basically the Voyager project is them ripping ripping Voyager apart and recreating it and, you know, maybe improving on it and putting it on all of their ships. You're like reverse engineering the work that was done by Seven. The whole point is that Voyager gives the Federation a massive leap forward and the, the Admiral basically explains this. The Admiral's giving all of the ex- exposition for me, basically saying, at the end of the Dominion War, Federation, basically all of the major powerhouses were all recovering and they all thought it would take decades to get back where we were. But because of Voyager, the Federation has taken a massive leap ahead of everyone. So they're now basically the top dogs he explains that, you know, it's all being installed. And once it is installed, you're going to be heading out to Bajor for basically the official joining of them joining the Federation. He states, as the flagship of the fleet, the Enterprise will transport, you know, VIPs, diplomats to Deep Space Nine for the ceremony. This is really important. This is like one of the things now where I thought this has got to go in. The card kicks off a little bit. He's a bit displeased, and he explains like he understands 
the responsibility of cap- this captain, uh, being the captain of the Enterprise. But he says he feels that he's been doing too many of these missions. Yeah, he says that the Enterprise is the most advanced ship in the fleet with the best crew. We should be out there exploring, protecting life. But instead, it feels like we're more being, being given a flag that we have to like wave around. And he says there's, there was hundreds of brave Starfleet officers fought to protect the Alpha and Beta Quadrant from the Dominion. And the Enterprise was just being treated like a toy, being shown off to our neighbours, like everything was okay. Really important. Picard has, because like one of the problems with Deep Space Nine is like, is like, well, where was the Enterprise? We've got this massive war. Where was like the best ship? When obviously the Enterprise weren't there because it was, Deep Space Nine show. They didn't want that sh- the ship there because like, mm. it was our show. Go away. Riker's there, sort of like backing him up, like sort of like nodding, like, yep, I agree. Look at my look at my good beard. The Admiral agrees with him and sort of makes a joke, like, you didn't let me finish Picard. I've just written my notes. It was like, make make a point. This was Picard saying why he weren't in the war. <laughs> so um the Admiral basically continues to tell Picard and Riker what their actual mission is. Them going there is just sort of like, that's the official reason why the Enterprise is there, but here's the real reason. So he tells him that the Federation has been having talks with the new civilian government of Cardassia, which is led by Elam Garrick, which everyone knows is the badass tailor from Deep Space Nine. Everyone's favourite former spy. Everyone's favourite former spy. Gardener, if you believe him as well. He's done loads of things. And he's been helping turn Cardassia into a, you know, a fair and more diplomatic society. And in the canon of Star Trek, that's actually true. And the way he's been doing that is if anyone sort of like disagreed or if anyone sort of was like, no, we should go back to the way we were. Apparently he was using his old set of skills to sort of like get them to change their mind. So he's, He's doing it, for, yeah. So he's like, he's trying to do good, but he's, still, he's doing it the Cardassian yeah. way. So the talks have been yeah. been about regarding helping Cardassia get back on its feet, and the aim of the Federation is for getting them to join the Federation. Um, the Federation has been secretly sending aid for the past five months, but over the last three weeks, all of the shipments have been being destroyed within an hour of being delivered to Cardassian transport ships. Starfleet does suspect there may be a mole leaking out the details of each shipment to to whoever's left of the marquee, but considering Cardassia hasn't made many friends in the recent years, it could literally be anybody because Cardassia, obviously by joining the people that wanted to kill everyone else, Cardassia didn't make many friends. So before we carry on, let's give a bit of context. The Maquis is a a human resistance uh, group which appear in Star Trek. They are... Um, humans that are left in the um, is it the demilitarized de- de- zone? Demilitarized zone. So um, when we, the Cardassians and the um, the Federation have a treaty, it's sort of a lot of human colonies are left in disputed Cardassian space and yeah. vice versa. And even though the Federation cannot intervene direct, um, the humans have sort of created this resistance group which leads raids on Cardassian ships yeah and then named after um a bunch of resistance groups from world war ii onwards on earth so the first maquis were uh french guerrilla war fighters that are 
were fighting against the puppet Vichy government. And there's been a few of them um, throughout Europe in the 20th century, usually resisting, resisting fascist um, occupation of their space. But the, basically the thing was, when the Federation and the Cardassians stopped having wars over the borders, they agreed on where the border between their space was going to be. And some um, human Federation colonies got stuck on the wrong side and some Cardassians got stuck on the Federation side. And obviously, whatever side you was on, you had to follow by that rule, by the, the laws of that space sector. Federation are sound, but again, Cardassians bunch of dickheads. So they were basically saying, yeah, we'll look after you. Uh, you just follow our rules. But they were basically just sending in troops to sort of like get rid of them. And obviously, if you watch that Next Generation episode, you'll see you, you saw like people trying to live under Cardassia rule, but then basically getting killed. Sassudamaki is great guys, but they're actually the Marquis are actually a really good um, villain for any Star Trek film because I'm not saying they're my villain, but they link um, Next Gen, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. They're created in Next Gen. Um, they're really explored in season two of in season two, season three of Deep Space Nine, because they have members of the crew leave Deep Space Nine to help the Marquis. And Voyager was actually uh, trailing and hunting down a Marquis ship when it got stuck with that ship. So part of Voyager's crew are actually ex marquee crewman because they thought we'll work together to get back um yeah so and the, basically the plan is we're going to use the federation basial ceremony and the celebrations as the reason for the enterprise being there but the real mission is to work with captain kira narice who has replaced cisco as the captain of the uss defiant and now commanding officer of deep space nine as well and her team to uncover who is destroying the shipments and to ensure elam garrick and the other cardassian vips return home safe as they will be visiting deep space nine for the bajor ceremony and more secret talks with the federation so that's the mission the admiral finishes off giving the mission details turns to the card and he's like do you want to tell him Picard nods, and with a beaming smile on his face, he turns to Riker, telling him, William, this will be your last mission as my number one, and we won't be taking no as an answer anymore. This ship nods to the USS Titan in the window, needs a captain, and once you return from Bajor, that captain will be you. Well, we'll thanks them both, and they did a handshake, you know, they did a like, oh, this is great, I'm going to do it stuff, and then Picard and Will leave. Outside, they have a sort of father-son moment, and he's like, oh, I'm proud of you. It's like, oh, I hope I'm as good a captain as you are sort of thing. You know, the, the classic stuff. And then uh, Picard tells Will to go and welcome the VIPs onto, onto the Enterprise, and he's going to be heading to engineering to sort of, like, get a lowdown of all the upgrades. So Will goes to the conference room where the VIPs are, and the diplomats are waiting Will introduces himself and shows him on board. He notices at the back a familiar face and heads towards the back of that group. It's Worf, the now Federation ambassador to Kronos. Not just like some guy in the background that you're going to like 
take the mick out of no he's really important now because he's a badass right good <laughs> will ain't gonna be giving him shit anymore because now like wolf is like the man he doesn't even have to wear a uniform he's that important the pair share some like friendly moments of banter as they make their way to the ship. And Will is surprised that Worf now finally has like some sense, of, like a small sense of humour because another thing that he developed in Deep Space Nine because they developed his character really good. Because uh, <laughs> that's what they do on Deep Space Nine. <laughs> they don't just concentrate on Picard. They, 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 they do character development. Yeah. They don't just concentrate on Picard and Data. They actually like, oh, look, there's other characters. Picard enters engineering to find Data and Seven of Nine focused on a computer screen. And Geordie's in the background sort of finishing off some tech panels. You know, we sort of like, you know, you, you know the Star Trek feeling like, oh, that's a thing. And then he just puts the panel back. Yeah. Picard greets the trio and asks for a report regarding the, the upgrades. Seven gives him a short speech explaining her work on the Voyager project. Again, just redoing some of the stuff the Admiral said about the project. More kind of like specifics on what it can do, yeah, I guess. Like what, it, what it's capable of. Again, like this this is a moment for the Voyager fans. So her and Data then begin to give Picard like a report on all the upgrades. They go into fine, fine detail and they go on for like, you know, they go to like proper, like proper tech. Picard just smiles and nods. And once the pair finish, Picard looks at Geordie. Geordie laughs and then basically gives Picard a much you know, shorter layman's term version of what they've just said. Notable upgrades are long range, long range communication and a quantum slipstream drive, which is basically quicker warp. Geordie says we're going to, says we're going to be testing it on our trip to Bajor. The quantum slipstream drive will allow the Enterprise to reach speeds ranging from about warp 25 to warp 50 for a limited time. Normally, Earth to Bajor takes about a week at high warp, but with this new drive, I'm hoping we can do it in less than a day. And he's like, sound, let's go. Picard says we're going to be like leaving the mission within an hour, Thanks Seven of Nine for her hard work. She wishes them good luck and then leaves, stating, once her work on the Enterprise is finished, she can now continue her work redesigning the Voyager B. Yes, there's going to be another Voyager. Joe, are you still here? Are you... Are you? Uh, oh, I dead? am. It's just I'm, I'm having to just... Uh, I, I've been leaving my mic off to save the sounds of typing while I've been just Wikipediaing all of these things. Seven of nine. <laughs> Oh no, that's fine. It's, you, it's fine. It's just that you've like, got to bear in mind. I am. I am frozen. trying to find out about basically five different TV series at one time. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, it's fine. Uh, it makes sense. as I say. Um, I the sure haven't come in yet. I'm still not sure where Kirk is. I'm very confused. Kirk's dead. <laughs> that all happens. I basically get ready to leave. The Enterprise leaves space dock and goes to warp. Then at warp. We all watch various crew members preparing to engage the slipstream drive. Just, yeah. <laughs> Go on a little bit. Star Trek is so complicated, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but once you've done the setup, the actual event, the actual story is not that complex. It's all it's all set up. I can't wait to get to Act 3 when it's basically, there is a great battle. 
It's uh, it's like it's like one of those board games where it's actually only an hour and a half gameplay time, but it takes yeah. about five hours to set up and explain the rules. Yeah. But then once you're into it, it's really great. It's just it requires so much to build to it. Yeah. Okay, so the various crew members they're getting ready to engage the drive. The bridge the bridge crew are all alert and ready. Picard's calmly sitting in his office with Will. On Picard's desk, we can see the Bajor sector, and the pair are discussing the various attacks on the on the aid ships. And then you get engineering to engineering to the captain. It's Geordie. We're ready, sir. Picard replies with excellent. Captain to the crew, prepare to engage. Slipstream drive. The pair leave the office for the bridge, and the bridge officers are checking their screens. They're pressing their buttons. Picard asks Data, who is obviously stationed at the helm. He's like, are we ready? Data turns, confirms the ship's ready. Picard stands and obviously points and says, engage. I was going to do, a, I was do a, an impression of him then, but I wouldn't have, wouldn't have been able to. I'm not, I'm oh, not Joe. Please, try. I'm not Joe. I haven't got Go on, like, go on do, it. do it. Do it. Do no, it. Um, okay, do it. Okay, okay, okay. I'm bald. I'm cool at Shakespeare. Engage. There we go. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so the ship ship enters the quantum stream, and it's like a blue and green cone that blasts in front of the the ship from the, the deflector, and it sort of like creates a tunnel around the ship, and that's what they fly through. There's some turbulence. That's actually canon as well. It's actually in Star Trek Online when you do it. That's what it looks like. Boom. I'm not just yes, making this. I'm just making this up. I'm using it. <laughs> oh, everyone who's listening to this has played the MMO Star Trek Online. All right. It's good. I I mean, it's fine. We can take this as canon. As far as we can tell, the next Matrix film is treating the Matrix Online as canon. So we can go ahead. Okay. So right. there's like some. Present. So there's some moments of turbulence. And like light flickerings, but that passes. And after like an early bit of like tense moments, everything everything becomes clear and everything's working perfect. It works. Who, who saw that coming on Star Trek? Like an advanced bit of tech just like does the job. Boom. So they so um the Enterprise enters Bajor and they drop out of warp. The camera pans around the ship to reveal the planet Bajor, which is basically proper lush. Like Earth Plus, it's a really nice planet. So, are you saying that Bajor is like uh, space Marbella? Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, it's where people it's where people would go on their holidays to like. Should we go to Bajor in the middle like, yeah. of war zone? Yeah, like you'd go there like no carbs before Bajor. Yeah, that's what it are is. There, yeah. Are there a series of Earth people just pointing at signs asking for chips in patronizing voices? No, it's not. It, it's, no, they all take their replicators with them. Yeah. So it's fine. Oh, okay. You so have we, to eat dirty foreign food. So, <laughs> so we follow the ship. Right, as, right carry on, all right, carry So we follow the ship as it docks with docks on one of the upper pylons of Deep Space Nine. Because again, it's gonna look. It's gonna be. Look, it's gonna look cool. It always looks cool when a ship docks there and it's like Deep Space Nine, but then it's the Enterprise. Mm. That's like literally two TV shows come together, boom, and dock. 
There we go. So various crew members and VIPs like leave the Enterprise onto the deep, deep Space Nine's promenade, which is basically, Joe, um, a high street in space. Got it. Picard, it's, a, it's a promenade. Yeah, Got it. It's a prom- yeah. Oh, yeah. But still. <laughs> yeah, I it know, is a but, word that exists yeah. outside of Star Wars. Yeah, but Star, Star, Wars, Trek. Star Trek. But I I'm just giving him the sort of like layer of the land. Um, yeah. Picard is the last, uh, the last of the people to enter the promenade, and we follow him as he walks through, taking it all in. There's a large smile on his face, and he's slightly surprised at, at what he sees. Deep Space Nine has become. The last time he was here um, was at the start of Deep Space Nine in the pilot, and the pilot of Deep Space Nine basically starts after Cardassia leaves Bajor after like a 50-year um, invasion, a 50-year occupation. And when they leave Deep Space Nine, they basically take anything of value and have basically just destroyed the place. So last time Picard was here, it was effectively a shithole. But now Deep Space Nine, it's like buzzing with life. He sees all the happy people, the different species living side by side. Rarely do you see Picard like drop his guard and enjoy the moment. He continues to, to venture, passing the shops, and stops outside the Klingon restaurant to listen to the chef sing some Klingon operas. There's a small crowd forms, and Picard notices to his right Worf sort of waiting to enter the Bajorian temple. Worf is waiting for a group of worshippers to leave as the prayer service has just finished. Picard notices Worf enter alone and he follows him. The temple is empty. Worf is standing at the far end, about three metres from the altar, but looking at the floor. Worf notices that he's not alone anymore and he says, hello, Captain. Picard sort of says, I haven't been your captain for a very long time. I think it's about time you started calling me John Luke. And Worf now goes, I'll consider it. Can't we... Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Before you carry on. Before Sorry. you carry on. Say it in his voice. In whose voice? Hello, Captain. Oh, I'm not doing... I'm not doing Worf. Worf. Go on. <laughs> hello, Captain. No, Go I can't on. do it. I can't do it. He says, hello, Captain. <laughs> <Deal with Okay. laughs> I've, I've never watched this, but I'm going to try for an hello, impression Captain. just based on this. Just, hello, Captain. How was that? I mean, it's better mine. It's actually not not that far off, to be fair. Like it, it's yeah. It's I, just a I deep was, voice. of course, basing my impression on assuming that he um, sounds like Alan Dale in the OC. Just hello, it's me. Look at him just trying to get it onto programs that um, he's watched. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I read that Alan Dale was in this film, so I'm just basing it on that. It's not in my film. So. <laughs> Worf replies... He was in Nemesis. Nemesis no longer exists. Yeah. Worf replies, I'll consider it John Luke. Because obviously, Worf's got a bit of a sense of humour now. Picard tells Worf how proud he is of all of his achievements since leaving the Enterprise. As you've noticed, there's a lot of character moments in this film because it's Star Trek and not Star Wars. We do our talking in Star Trek. Uh, yeah, so he's tell- John Luke is like stopped being a horrible, horrible cold man. Yeah, he's a nice guy now. Um, he 
says like how proud he is of what he's achieved since leaving the Enterprise. Worf thanks him and then looks down again at the same point he was looking at when Picard entered. Picard notices and tells him the story about the one time he met Jaxia Dax. And it was it's something in line that how she was a highly admired science officer. He tells Worf how he tried to convince her to join the crew of the Enterprise. And he was like, a lot of captains tried to. But she had her heart set on joining Cisco here. Picard then adds that he was truly sorry when he heard the news about her. And that Worf thanks her and says that he misses Jaxia every day. But she was a great warrior. And she's earned her place in... Right, I'm going to say it now. Scovacore, which is the Klingon, like, heaven. Right, that scene is really important because you've got to acknowledge that all of the stuff that happened to uh, Worf, he got married and then he's, then he's like, the love of his life was basically murdered by, basically, the Bajor Devils. And at no point in Nemesis, at the race, look at you, Joe. Yeah. And at no point in Nemesis during the wedding did they ever like say anything like nice to Worf. No, they just sort of like make a joke that he has to do all the wearing wedding ceremonies. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll just do it. You need to acknowledge Worf's been through some shit. <laughs> and that's that. And then Picard can sort of explain like give a reason why they missed the wedding because that was another thing that you'd think you know his basically family would have been there but you know they weren't which is fine because it got cancelled and then it was like quickly uncancelled so you, you you can allow it you can have a reason like that the enterprise was going and then it got cancelled and then like, oh we'll, we'll go to another mission but then they couldn't get there there's a good reason why they weren't there not just like mm. the enterprise doesn't exist now Okay, so where are we? They've had that moment. So then, end scene. Yeah. So then Picard and Riker report to Deep Space Nine, the ops of Deep Space Nine, to speak to Captain Kira, who is, again, another badass of Star Trek that should have had her own film, but they didn't. In ops, they find Commander Nog, who is now second in command to Kira. And also, notable thing about Nog, he's the first Ferengi in Starfleet. So, again, another cool character. And then you also find as well in Ops, Tom Paris and Belana Torres, who was the helmsman and head of engineering on Voyager. Because Deep Space Nine needed those two, needed a helmsman, and it needed mm. an engineer at the end of um, Deep Space Nine because... O'Brien left to go back to Earth. Nog was the helmsman, but now he's second in command. They need another helmsman. So I've just moved them two from Earth onto Deep Space Nine. And I'll explain later why they wanted to move. And there, so they, they enter. Nog's just chilling on a computer. And Tom and Bellana are sort of like, she, he's, she's basically telling him off. Um, she's being like passive aggressive aggressively telling him like he shouldn't be pushing the defiant too hard um nog welcomes the pair and takes them up to the captain's office the office hasn't changed at all since like we last saw it in deep space nine except the baseball stand on the desk is empty 
again, another little Easter egg for the um, Deep Space Nine fans because at the end of Deep Space Nine, mm-hmm. the baseball was still on the desk because it's Cisco's baseball and he'd basically gone to join the um, the Bajor gods, the prophets in the wormhole. Basically went to chill in heaven for a little bit and Kira, it was always hinted sometimes in Deep Space Nine, like if the baseball was there, Cisco's coming back. And that's sort of, yeah, so the baseball's not there now. So mm. Cisco's, so be like, oh, Cisco's back. Um, then the scene follows where the two captains discuss, you know, the attacks, the ceremony, the secret talks. And uh, Kira adds to the conversation that Starfleet have posted a very large security force on Deep Space Nine. Meaning that in their missions, they can fully utilize both crews and Laura, whoever's destroying the aid convoy. Um, so after some planning, they agree on Nog's plan. Nog comes up with a plan and they agree on that, which is to take the Enterprise and the Cloak Defiant into the Badlands the day after the Bajor Federation ceremony. Traveling behind the Enterprise, the Defiant will mask the Enterprise's warp and energy signatures, so it will appear on other starship sensors as a Cardassian transport. This will then lure the attackers like out, and they will be in attacking range before any of the ships can work out that oh, it's not a Cardassian ship; it's a it's a Federation ship, and there they'll be able to like to get whoever it is. Easy peasy, cool plan. Mm. Whew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just like, it's ri- like I've just like written tons, and there's no, there's no like space cops in it at all, or time cops. No time guys. Time guys. Time guys. Are you with me? The so important far? thing is that they they're guys, and it's in time. But with- yeah, I, you know, I'm, it took I'm me a moment to like, you know, get into it, but I'm kind of as much as I am thinking to myself occasionally. So who's that? And I have about 15 different tabs that I'm currently closing just after reading them so as not to slow down my internet. I I am following it and I'm wanting to follow it. So there's oh, that. Thanks. Yeah, I'm really interested to see where it goes. Whew. And hopefully now that all of the actual setup is out of the way, um, we can sort of just crack on with the rest of the story. Like and now we can move on to part. Act 2. So Act 2 is basically there's a number of smaller scenes focused on characters during the build-up to the Federation ceremonies. And I've bullet-pointed them so we can get through them quicker. So, because I just wanted I just wanted a bit where you saw, like, everyone um, just, like, living, coming together, where you see all the characters. Like, yeah, that's what I wanted anyway. So we've got... Kira and Picard welcoming welcoming Garrick and his two security officers onto Deep Space Nine. We have Data walking into Quark's bar as he's quite curious by the large crowd shouting Dabo. Garrick has lunch with Dr. Bashir on the promenade. Julian Bashir, sorry, Joe, if you want to Google what that is. He's joking. Oh, no, I'm, I'm you, aware of Bashir. Oh, yeah. We know Bashir. Oh, yeah. Look, so, I know you, of Alexander Siddig. So he's uh, so he's jokingly saying, "Oh, so it's Leggett Garrick now," and Garrick replies, "No, Doctor, just Garrick, plain simple Garrick." 
again that that's like a callback to their lunches and what they used to say one lover you've got Riker and will having a drink at the bar tom's telling will some of the crazy things that happened in the delta quadrant and will is basically trying to convince tom to come and join join him on the titan he needs a helmsman so you might as well try and get the best um and in the background of that shot you can see data sort of like looking at the dabo table at the dabo table at the dabo table oh. ah you can see data it's in the background looking at the dabo table in confusion there's another scene where right, you got can we dog. just um can we just really track what's the dabo table it's um a ferengi version of gambling it's a bit like um, okay roulette it's one of these fancy space games like you'd see in the uh, everyone's favourite bit of Star Wars The Last Jedi. Got it. Yeah. Another scene you've got is... Well, it's like, it's literally like space yeah. roulette. Got it. Like, it looks like a space roulette wheel. It's basically rigged. And well done for neither of you for taking the bait of me suggesting that the best bit of Star Wars The Last Jedi was the casino planet. I ignored that bit because we're talking about Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, the Star Wars free zone. Um, you've got Nog working with Geordi, uh, preparing a defiance so they can mask the Enterprise's signature. Again, we've got Data. Just He plays a round of Dabo and loses, but he's convinced by Quark to, to continue as uh, Quark sees Data as quite an easy target. Then you've got another scene where Kira is welcoming more Bajorans onto Deep Space Nine. And then we have um, Belana Torres, Esri Dax, and Diana Troy having a drink in 10 Forward, which is obviously the bar and the Enterprise. And uh, so Belana, uh, so Troy asks Belana like, why she was so quick to leave Earth after finishing her work on the Voyager project. Um and then Balana says, like, after years of fighting in the Marquis and those years in the Delta Quadrant, she's seen the worst in the universe. And she found how comfortable and peaceful Earth was unsettling. It's like Earth is like Earth is paradise. But one day I realized like how comfortable I became and how numb I was to like the dangers out there. And that's pretty much why she was. After her work, she was like, Tom, we're, we're moving to Deep Space Nine. We're leaving Earth because it's it's too nice. Mm-hmm. Which is, again, something that, like, reference to um, how Cisco used to see Earth. And he was like, when the people of Earth look out their windows, they see paradise. And that's what they think, like, the world is. But they don't realise that out here, it isn't paradise. People have just got to survive. Um, yeah, so we have that like yeah. we have that like serious scene with them, and then the next scene is a crowd erupts as Data wins big on Dabo, and Quark is like angrily staring at him. Data notices as un- and he's unsure why Quark is looking at him in such a weird, angry way, and then just because he's confused, and he just thinks, "Oh, okay," and then just shouts Dabo in his face because he thinks that's the correct thing to do at the table. And then we have more another scene where we have diplomats signing the documents at the head of a long, large table, which is full of diplomats from different planets of the Federation. And they all clap because Bajor has now entered the Federation. And then we sort of 
sort of um, finish off what Deep Space Nine was all about. It was about Bajor joining the Federation, and we sort of like close that book of that story. But they're now in. So then, what follows is like a massive party on Deep Space Nine, basically in the promenade. We've got huge crowds of Bajorans. Basically, think the cave party from Matrix 2, but more PG and less sweaty. Yep. The defiant circling around Deep Space Nine, you know, like having fireworks. And then Ben Sisko appears on the second floor, like Morpheus again from Matrix 2. And the crowd goes silent and Cisco gives off like a legendary speech, which I haven't wrote because, again, I thought you'd ask me to do his accent. So I thought I'm not going to write the speech. And plus, how can you write like a Cisco monologue? <laughs> it sounds this sounds like cowardice to it me, is. Sean. But basically, he's got... <laughs> I, 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 I want to hear Avery Brooks voice, no. but... but... So, no, not doing it. Fine. Fine. Um, Fine. So basically... He talks about his time in the wormhole with the prophets, the struggles Bajor has faced, basically the occupation and like its key role in the Dominion War, the positive impact that Bajor has had on the Alpha and Beta Quadrant. We see various characters watching the speech, ending on Picard watching this speech. Cisco finishes, looks across the crowd, and he locks eyes with Picard, nods his head, and smiles. Picard nods back as the crowd carries on with the party and celebration. He holds the smile on his face until Cisco disappears into the crowd, looks down with like with shame on his face and begins to make his way back to the Enterprise. Now the reason why Picard's a bit like a bit shameful when he sees um Cisco is that Cisco is one of the only few people in star trek that have like confronted picard with his actions as part of the borg collective um cisco's wife died in the yeah when he when he was sent to locutus yeah when he was locutus of borg captured by the borg and the borg were like we're gonna go kill some people so picard struggles with that himself but at the start of the pilot episode of deep space nine cisco as much as i like cisco he was a bit of a dick at the start. And he was like, oh, we meet again. And Picard's like, we haven't met before. And he's like, yes, we have here. And Picard's like, oh, yeah, that was me. So, yeah. The sh- oh, yeah, I was on the yeah. wife. So while Cisco is at peace with everything, um, Picard still feels that shame and responsibility for his actions as Locutus. Yeah. Which again, you see in the TV episode, in the TV show of Picard, he's still struggling with that. Which is probably going, you know, he became a Borg and killed loads of people. Probably, you know, you don't get over that. Um, so the next day, the mission into the Badlands. Both crews report to the ship. Captain Narice leaves Nog in command of Deep Space Nine during the mission. As she is heading to the space dock, Cisco manages to catch her before she leaves. He wishes her luck and jokingly tells her to look after his ship. He adds that Garrick has invited him, him, Worf and Bashir for dinner. And then she says to him, oh, Cardassian food, lucky you. And, you know, she goes on the ship. Bulkhead I, closes. 
Cardassian I've food. I've got to be honest. Great. I'm with Joe on this. I feel somewhat disappointed that we're lacking any impersonations over all this dialogue. I'm not doing any. I'm. I'm. <laughs> I'm. My absolutely flawless Michael Douglas impression on week this one. Yeah. Um, I just and feel like my down. frankly kind of transcendent Mads Mickelson week two. I don't. I don't. Man, that Matt Mickelson was blinding, mate. I done some Patrick Stewart at the start. That's all you're getting you, from me. Oh, you did. You got. We got one. One word out of him. That's, that's all. Yeah. Engage. There you go. Oh, we <laughs> got it twice. There we go. Um, so the Enterprise and the Cloak Defiant enter the Badlands. This part of space is obviously negatively affects starship systems. That's why it's called the Badlands and people avoid it. People avoid it. So there's no warp drive. There's no long range sensors and it limits the power that they can use for their weapons and shields. Due to the Voyager upgrades, the Enterprise still has its long range sensors and is only limited to its shields to about 75%, which is much better than anybody expected. The Defiant isn't so lucky. Balana states to both captains that to make the cloak still operational and for the masking warp masking device to stay operational, she's taken all of the power for most of her systems of the ship, obviously, except pulse engines and warps warps uh, except pulse engines and life support, meaning the ship itself if detected, it's going to be a really easy target and she won't be able to bring some of the systems back online until they leave the Badlands. So obviously just explaining like the the problems with the plan and like where the where the risk is. Um, so it isn't long before the Enterprise picks something up. It's five unclassified starships which are on an intercept course, powering up their weapons. One minute until weapon range. Record orders, red alert. Weapons are readied. Shields are up. Will jumps out of his seat and heads over to Data, who has been trying to work out who or what are these five ships. Data tells him there isn't a problem with the sensors. It's it's as if the computers is telling us that the ships simply don't, don't exist. The the five ships get closer and they enter visual range. All five ships lower their shields and power down weapons. And they can see their five Federation ships. One sovereign class starship, like the Enterprise, and four Prometheus class starships, which are a ship that's only appeared in Voyager because it's basically the advance up from the Defiant, where the Defiant is considered the most powerful ship. The Prometheus class was the one up that was created in secret that you only really find out about in Voyager. They open communications with the ship, with the ships, and there's nothing for a while. Everyone's panicking. They don't understand. They can't work out what these ships are or where they've come from. There's no um, serial numbers. There's no names on the hull. They're just unmarked Federation ships. And then the and then there's like, oh, communication. And it's Ro, Ro Laren, X, 
crewmen of the Enterprise who left to join the Marquis, and everyone's a bit like, Ro? And they have some catching up, and everyone's a bit confused. They're trying to work out, like, what are these ships? How have you got, like, the same ship as the Enterprise? And then they begin to notice that their uniforms are a bit different. While it's the exact same as the a normal Starfleet uniform, instead of the classic colours where you've got, like, the red, the gold, the blue, it's now white there and with just a generic Starfleet uniform. So she basically tells them of her plan, which is that to that she's the one that's been destroying the shipments. And they're like, why are you doing this? And they basically then find out that this is Section 31, obviously the secret, secret um, order within the Federation. The people who answer to no one, the people who keep paradise, paradise. She basically then tells them when the Marquis was destroyed by the Dominion, Section 31 stepped in and saved as many of the Marquis as they could, realising that having Federation citizens that are willing to go that far to protect their land, to protect what's right against, you know, an evil outsider, that they're perfect people for Section 31. Oh, I really like that. I like that a lot. But I wasn't expecting that. at all. Obviously, if you've watched the episode, you realise that Roe is actually a highly intelligent uh, tactical officer. So it makes sense as well mm-hmm. why she would be high up in Section 31 and to be given, effectively, a really powerful ship. Well, she was given the advanced training, wasn't yeah. she, like, right prior to the episode yeah. um, that you find as a homework. Then they're like, I don't understand what you're doing. And she's like... Cardassia cannot join the Federation. You've seen you've seen the episodes where you've seen what you know Cardassians are like. They're bastards, basically. And she, as a as a Bajor, she's obviously lived through the occupation. She's seen the worst of the worst of what the Cardassians can do. And Section Thirty One agrees with her that they can't be allowed to join the Federation. And Picard's like, but they're changing. They're, they're on the path with their new government. They're trying to become a better people. We're helping them. And she basically goes, you have no right to tell me what the Cardassians can do. You, you only experienced their hatred, their cruelness for a couple of days. And all they'd done was flash some lights in your face. I grow up not realising that cruelty was an option. I had to live through that. I grew up moulded by that. And then she goes, Kira grew up moulded by that. And then she's sort of like, yes, we know the defiance cloaked behind you. So then so then they're like, whoa, what? But then it carries on. They're having this stalemate. Obviously, Section 31 doesn't want to... Destroy the Enterprise because, again, the Enterprise is important to the Federation. So, obviously, neither ship's going to attack on either ship because they are sort of on the same side. Picard says, I don't understand who Section 31 is. You know, they have that thing. And then she basically says, 
we're everywhere. We're everywhere. And Picard sort of calls bullshit on the we are everywhere. And then she's like, we're everywhere. Let's say um, a large security reinforcements on Deep Space Nine. We're everywhere. Say Data's first interview when he when he was part of the Federation. We are everywhere. And they're like, what do you mean you were there when Data? She was like, we have people everywhere. And then to show how wide spanning Section 31 is, she turns Data off. That's how Data dies. Because he, he has a shit death in Nemesis and I have to kill him either way. So I'm using his death as a way to show Picard that Section 31 is, uh, is to be feared, is to be respected, and you should be doing what they say. You red shirt in Data. No, you red shirt. You just having him turned off. She turns him off, and that's Harsh. it. She just met, and it's like out of nowhere because I want it to be like a shock. And again, mm-hmm. it's not completely out of the blue because it's what they did with uh, Odo. Uh, Bashir finds out that yeah. in Odo's first medical, Section Thirty One basically infected him with a disease that would, if he ever met other people like him, he'd pass on to them. And that's why the the founders are dying at the end of Deep Space Nine. So again, it's not something that I've made up. It's tactics that Section 31 have used before. So basically what you're saying is the data had become corrupted. Yeah. So it needed to um, they needed to just take a clean sweep, get rid of Fuck it. Sake, yeah. Yeah. Basically what you're saying Section 31 is um, an antivirus software. I hate yeah. you. Go back to like <laughs> Star Wars. So it hasn't affected anything because, again, like Data regularly backs himself up. So he's going to be there for the Picard TV series. So I haven't affected that. I mean, canon. There's chaos on the bridge. But then Picard, again, says to him, how is destroying some shipments going to destroy the Cardassians or stop them from joining the Federation? How is he's, he's sort of saying your plan makes no sense. And then, she's, and then she goes, this isn't my plan. My plan started the second you left Deep Space Nine. Because the real plan is that the security crew on Deep Space Nine are now going to assassinate Garrick. Imagine the head of the Cardassians being assassinated by Starfleet on the day Bajor joins the Federation on Deep Space Nine, the symbol of the Cardassians' failure of occupying Bajor, then Picard's like, no, but they wouldn't, they they wouldn't believe that we would tell them the truth. And she's like, would would they believe you, or would they keep fighting? Would they start a war because you've killed their leader? That's her plan. She's gonna assassinate Elam Garrick on the day Bajor entered the Federation with like. The Enterprise, effectively, there, you know, the flagship, the symbol of Starfleet, which is basically making yeah. it look really bad for the Federation and sort of saying, you know, there's no there's no way of coming back for them. These two mm. are on a collision course now after this. So then we cut to the door of Elam Garrick's, you know, his apartment, you know, where he's staying. Mm. It opens... Section 31 killed two security officers and they go in 
to kill Elam Garrick. But what they hadn't been told is that there were more people in the room. They assumed it was just the two people that came with him. But there's also Cisco, Worf and Bashir, human badass, Klingon badass and genetically engineered person who can basically do anything. So they basically get the two, get the people that were coming in to assassinate, secure the room and contact ops. Nog replies and basically says, Deep Space Nine has been taken over. Um, the only secure position is ops in the centre of Deep Space Nine because he knows all of the people there. They can't contact and they can't teleport. That's been knocked out. So the plan they devise is Worf and Cisco are going to get Garrick to ops where they can secure. It's the safest place. They can secure him there. And Bashir is going to go and sort out the um, transport being blocked and the communication being blocked. They identify that it's a, a part of the station that Bashir needs to go to. And that's their part of the film. We go back to the Enterprise. They work out what the plan is. And there's a little bit of a skirmish as basically the Enterprise tries to protect the Defiant while they can make a run for it. Um, and then they're going back to Deep Space Nine. So then like the rest of the film then is basically action heavy. We've got Cisco and Worf with protecting Garrick, making their way to Ops. And obviously they're not quite sure who's the enemy, who's the bad guy. So, they, you know, Nog's trying to help them as much as they can. Nog's there like saying, turn left, turn right, da 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 da, da. And then the Enterprise and Defiant is rushing back. So obviously the end of the film is really, really action heavy. We, we cut from space battle to on foot battle. It's really cool. Obviously, they get they get Garrick there, the Enterprise and the Defiant, get back to Deep Space Nine, and then Roe basically says, if we can't kill Garrick, then we will just blow up the station. So then we have more battles in Deep Space Nine. Everyone's safe. Um, Bashir does the does the thing, he does the space tech thing. There's transporters back online, and then Nog basically transports all of the security officers that he doesn't know into secured locations. So Deep Space Nine is secure now after all the fighting. But imagine that, like trying to wharf and Cisco. It'd be mm. cool. Yeah, that'd be cool. Mm. So then we have, then we focus more on the space battle <coughs> where Section 31 is now going to destroy Deep Space Nine. We have basically the Enterprise going up against uh, Rose ship and they go off and sort of like, because they're, they're equal, so they go off and have a cool battle between them. Um, and then, so then we have Deep Space Nine and the and the Defiant versus the these four Prometheus-class ships. The reason why I've picked the Prometheus-class, not only because it's an advanced ship and obviously it'd be a bit even, but obviously in a moment like this you need... Uh, cannon fodder. You need, you know, you need the in the Avengers. You need that nameless army where the good guys yeah, can yeah, kill yeah. loads of. The Prometheus ship has a really cool thing where it can split up into three little ships for attacks. So while the Deep Space Nine and the Defiant think they're like, oh, we'll have this. Next thing you know, each ship splits off into three smaller ships. So then instead of it being two on four, 
it's now due on 12. And we have some really cool, this, this, this is where you get the really cool space battles because Deep Space Nine has got lots of guns and lots of rockets. And it's like, boom, boom, everyone dies. So they kill all of them ships. The, the Enterprise basically does over Roe's ship. But Roe realises that, you know, they're basically lost. So she retreats using a quantum slipstream drive. And they're like, oh, how have they got that technology? So there's that sort of sense of like, maybe there is a mole, but there's a mole higher up than what we think. So that that's the end of basically the film. Everyone regroups on Deep Space Nine. Everyone's safe. Garrick sort of like makes a few jokes. He's saying like, you know, normally a statesman would be like, yo, as if you've got this secret organization that's tried to kill me. But Garrick's really cool about it because he's, he's sort of like, yeah, I would have done the same, but I probably would have done it better. And then he asks for a lift home. So the Defiant crew give him a lift home. And that's the end of the film. We sort, It sort of fades to black. Da, 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 da. Then we have an epilogue where the epilogue opens with I'm at the I'm, I'm at the end now guys you hmm. you're safe you can all go to the toilet <laughs> um so the epilogue opened back on space dock and it opened with Picard saying to Cisco so you just punched him in the face and he left you alone and Cisco's like yeah again that's a joke about Q Cisco's the only one that had to deal with Q once because he basically punched him in his face and that <laughs> joke is gone it's literally a Star Trek meme that joke it's gonna appear three times in the the trilogy that I'm setting up Riker's gonna ask him the same and Janeway's gonna ask him the same right. Cisco's like yeah you just punch him in the face and he leaves you alone but this is where Cisco and Picard have a little bit of a moment where um Cisco tells him that he needs to um, that he forgives him and he sort of tells him that like his time with the prophets he's been able to see perspective on stuff and obviously he knows that Picard and Locutus are two different people and that he knows it and he he forgives Picard and basically says Picard needs to start forgiving himself and that he needs to it wasn't him it was a different person so that's them having a moment but they're waiting in an admiral's office because they're going to take down Section 31 between the two of them. It's basically the highest-ranking captain with the best ship, the captain who's probably had the most interactions with Section 31, and he's he ain't got much else on. And you need an admiral that you know isn't corrupted because they suspect that, you know, with, the, with Rose's ship having such advanced technology that that there's, there is a mole, that Section 31 is everywhere. So they need an admiral that hasn't been around long enough to have been sort of taken into Section 31. Say an admiral who's been on the other side of the universe for the last seven years and wouldn't have even been around to be corrupted by Section 31. Janeway enters her office. Oh. And, and, she's, and, and that's how it ends. So I, I do just want to track. Earlier on, you stated that the plan with this film was that it was going to lead to um, a follow-up film. 
Yes. Or at least saying of a trilogy and also um, a spin-off TV series. Yeah. Obviously, we've grasped what the the trilogy is, but what specifically is the spin-off series? So, the, the trilogy, let me just yeah. say what the trilogy is. The trilogy is those three taking down Section 31. Hmm. And you're going to have... so. Obviously, the cat, the the bad guy in this film was an ex uh, next generation character. You'll have um, in the next one perhaps um, uh, and a character from Deep Space Nine that joined the Marquis, and one of the old Marquis crewmen that was on Voyager as the bad guy. And then like Chakotay or someone. Chakotay would be a big one for Janeway that would like cut a deep. Something like that. Yeah. And then obviously the third one will be like the all of Section 31 and we take them down. The TV show would be Will Riker, his adventures on the I, I genuinely Riker. thought you were going to say Worf because Worf was going to get a series that never happened. Yeah, I thought you were going to go for, and I'm purely basing this on for the listening audience at home, Sean is currently also wearing a Garrick T-shirt. I assumed it was going to be Garrick based. You mentioned Garrick, no. Yeah. Because I I feel like Worf's had enough Star Trek. Yeah, he is in a lot of things. He's in seven seasons of Next Generation, five, no, four seasons of Deep Space Nine, and then all the films. And plus, at this point, you'll have Enterprise that's on on tv and then i think like uss titan whatever, whatever they'd call it would star be a trek bit titan, probably. star trek titan let's have that 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 sounds better that would be like you, you could have like a mix of like classic adventures he could just go off and do whatever he wants because there's no you know we're covering all the big stuff in the films we could we could have new stories with the uss titan with a new crew but then a few of the older crew. So you've Especially got... because like they've got the slipstream technology from Voyager now. Yeah, you go... So you could easily have it that like his first assignment is um to go and explore the gamma. Is it gamma? The gamma quadrant. Go through the wormhole. Yeah. Or Delta. Because like I know that Voyager is going through the Delta quadrant, but they are literally making a beeline. Like there's yeah. no actual like exploration done they're just sort of doing they're not they're not actually exploring they're, they're trying to get home so if you want to do a classic trek you could have it that yeah. using the technology that voyager brought back titan is off kind of where yeah. no man has gone before sort of deal. because you've got that one show you can you can try and you, you know you can really just like if you, if you want to put it with the film as well, like you can, you could, try, mm. it's going to be a lot easier to do that. Mm. But that's well, where I am. How, what I'm did you say, think? Overall, I actually, I thought it was very good. I think that there was a lot of it that I'm, from a personal point of view, I'm not sure how much it would appeal not to uh, existing Star Wars. I'm going to keep saying that, aren't I? Star Trek fans. Um, but I think that there's a certain notion to it that I think, especially as we know that some years after this, we have to assume in this universe you're setting up, the J.J. Abrams films also exist. Um, well, we, you know, there'll be something for the casuals. And I think it's good that this is something that really feels like from the way you described it, it's something that it kind of it appeals to the hardcore without ever dis 
descending just into blatant fan service. Yeah, and yeah, I really I like that. Um, I think as well, what it's it's, hard, it's important to remember that obviously Nemesis came out in 2002, so presumably Legacy would also come out in 2002. Nemesis would, and yeah, obviously. Like, you, what you're dealing with in the early 2000s is a environment in media where um, studios do not yet trust audiences to have a competency level to follow things across years and across different mediums. But Eat Space Nine was one of the first shows that did. Exactly. So I think it's interesting that they abandoned that premise when it came to the films. Um, What you're doing is giving the Trekkies, who really, you know, with with, uh, fan culture being what it is, like one of the first examples of fan culture, um, like participatory culture in in fandoms was Star Trek. It was yeah. um, fanfic fanzines around in the eighties, in the seventies. People were distributing their own content. Like, if there is one type of fan that can be trusted to follow this canon across all of these different threads and culminate it into a film like this, which rewards them for that diligence, it would have been Star Trek. And as it turns out, what well, we didn't really get that level of respect. Um, given to audiences until the Marvel Cinematic Universe came along and proved that that is something that can be done. Um, well, so really, it's... it would have been a perfect hmm. pilot, like pilot for that sort of thing, and we could have ended up in a very different universe, having those um, expanded cinematic continuities, like almost a decade earlier. Plus, the fans would lose their shit when Janeway enters the office at the end. Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) I really like it. I think I think it's it walks the line so well, Um, especially because a lot of people's reaction to the J.J. Abrams films has been that, like, I think was it Beyond the third one? Was it Beyond? Yeah, third one yes. was Beyond. It was written by Simon Pegg. And yeah, written reason... by Simon Pegg in collaboration with oh someone else. I can't remember who off the top of my head. But, but yeah, everyone's reaction to that generally was that they really liked it because it felt like a really extended episode of Trek hmm. rather than the first two, which felt like Star Wars. Yeah. Um, so this does feel like a very extended and richly drawn episode of those three films those those three series and i think yeah. that's where the strength lies because even though you you know you don't have to necessarily be a fan to follow the story uh if you are a fan you get a lot more out of it and i think that that's very difficult to do to be honest uh, i think you did yeah. very well thank you thank you that's what i tried to do that's why i added more um because originally when I'd done it, it was just a space fight. There was no siege of Deep Space Nine. And then uh, one night I was like, let's let's try and kill Garrick. So I tried, I tried yeah, to add more. The siege of Deep Space Nine is the strength. It's yeah. the strong, uh, it's strongest part. And I think it'd be interesting if I might like... I think what would be actually really interesting as a slight adjustment is that at the end of it, destroying Deep Space Nine, like having it so the McKee actually destroy it. Uh, but no. they don't manage to kill everyone. Why not? No, you can not. Why not? There is no way on earth I'm writing a I'm writing a film where Deep Space Nine gets destroyed at the end. Nah, because it's not about the actual station. It's about the the people that are on it. Like you don't need Deep Space Nine 
in this kind of brave new universe because the Dominion War is over. Like you don't need it. No, I think I think you do because Deep Space Nine. It is. It's. It's not like. It's. It's not a military position. It. It just ended up being a military position because it was stationed next to the wormhole. So it was the easiest place to defend. You know where the Dominion would be coming in. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying is that as like a symbolic end to those three series and kind of like this is an end to this because you've got the Cardassian, you've got the Bajorans joining the uh, the Federation. You've got the Cardassians under Garrick sort of going in that direction as well. If you have it that the, the, the Section 31 slash McKee think that they have like won, but they haven't because they managed to get everyone off Deep Space Nine. So they've just destroyed the station. They haven't destroyed the people that made the station what it is. I mean, yeah, I yes, and you could have that's why you could have that's why um Bashir's trying to get the teleporter back on. Yeah. But then yeah, I suppose you could, but then you'd have to add a bit where you need more ships to come and help. Cause there's loads of people on Deep Space Nine. Well, uh, I'm not saying it's definite, like it's just yeah. a suggestion I would make. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really like it. So hmm. well done. I'm looking forward to hearing when you do your second and third films. And well done for everyone who got this far because sweating. I'm sure there'll be some editing up to this point, but it's also worth noting that we are currently at, um, according to the uh, audio software here, we're at minute 116, which means that if you were watching this at the same time as Star Trek Nemesis, Nemesis you would have just got to the end of the credits. Um, so well done um, <laughs> so nine hours into this uh, you've watched Nemesis you've watched four yeah. episodes of Star Trek and I'm assuming you've, you've uh, now gone work. and watched Star Trek notes. Into Darkness and Beyond if you want to save yourself some time with the uh, Star Trek trilogy obviously I think we all know the best bit of it is um, Carl Urban as Bones so just go and watch uh, Carl Urban's Dread or better, yeah. Boys. Just just go and Google Carl Urban and go on images and just sort of look at him. Can we can we end the podcast? <laughs> okay, but before we end the podcast, we have to do a sign off because we haven't done a sign up yet. So okay. that was Sean's. Um, <coughs> sorry, Joe. Since you haven't spoken very much this episode, do you want to do the sign off as well? Sure. Um, well, thank you everyone for listening. Obviously, if you haven't for some reason, please do subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. And you can find Sean Brady where? Um, on Instagram, at still Shawnee B, and another podcast called the Fear to Pitch Podcast, where I don't talk as much. Yes, that's right. Um, you can also find me on the Theatre Pitch Podcast. You can find me on YouTube at Boat Club. And you can find me on Twitter at NotJoeRonchka. That's N-O-T-J-O-E-R-A-C-Z-K-A. And as always, Joe, can we find you anywhere? Um, if you try really hard, but I'm not putting it out there in the world. Um, I was going to say, though, as a new feature, uh, I know that we have at least like three listeners. Oh, no. um, so if you have a film that you feel is suitable for... Uh, the cannon fodder treatment the fixing treatment uh, please contact one of us probably let's face it joe or sean since you don't know where to contact me uh, with your suggestions and we will try and incorporate that into future episodes 
Uh, we haven't um, decided what we are doing next week yet. Um, oh, I say next week, next episode yet. Um, yeah. Although I'm going to put forward my idea for the Back to the Future uh, change where Marty McFly uh, kills his dad and has to fuck himself back into existence by shagging his mother. We don't need to see Oedipus Rex to the future. Oedipus Rex to the future uh, will be the next episode of Cannon Fodder. Uh, unless it isn't, you'll have to find out. By uh, yep. by listening, listening I, really hope it's not. I can't sit here and watch you destroy the greatest film ever made. Um, although I kind of like the idea of getting together um, with what we said at the beginning of remaking uh, my dinner at Andre's as a as a breakfast thing. How about we fix the Breakfast Club by making it my Breakfast Club with Andre? Okay, can um, we also complete this merger by? Doing my major issue with Breakfast Club of replacing Judd Nelson with Wallace Shawn. Yes, yes, we could. Um, that was actually going to be my next breath, but I see you've taken the wind out myself. So, um, <laughs> and yeah, I'm just... assuming we're also agreed um, that just Andre Gregory is also there because we can't eliminate any of the rest of the cast. Obviously, obviously. So, um, I'm just going to fade out at this point. Bye, guys. Yeah. Bye. Bye.